Okay, we begin then with our third class and chapter nine of The Great Divorce. And uh, uh, here we're going to find Lewis, uh, again, in sort of the gateway of heaven, uh, the antechamber of heaven, as it were, uh, meeting uh, someone he knows. So here we go. And I cannot really do a Scot Scottish accent, but so I will not try. I can do an Irish, but. Um, Where are you going, said a voice with a strong Scotch accent. I stopped and looked. The sound of the unicorns had long since died away, and my flight had brought me to open country. I saw the mountains where the unchanging sunrise lay, and in the foreground two or three pines on a little knoll, with some large smooth rocks and heather. On one of the rocks sat a very tall man, almost a giant, with a flowing beard. I had not yet looked one of the solid people in the face. Now when I did so, I discovered that one sees them with a kind of double vision. Here was an enthroned and shining God whose ageless spirit weighed upon mine like a burden of solid gold. And yet at the very same moment, here was an, other, was an old weather-beaten man, one who might have been a shepherd, such a man as tourists think simple because he is honest and neighbors think deep for the same reason. His eyes had the far-seeing look of one who had lived long in open, solitary places, and somehow I divined the network of wrinkles which must have surrounded them before rebirth had washed him in immortality. I don't quite know, said I. You can sit and talk to me then, he said, making room for me to sit on the stone. I don't know you, sir, said I, taking my seat beside him. My name is George, he answered, George MacDonald. Oh, I cried, then you can tell me. You at least will not deceive me. Then, supposing that these expressions of confidence needed some explanation, I tried, trembling to tell this man all that his writings had done for me. I tried to tell him how a certain frosty afternoon at Leatherhead Station, when I had first brought a, bought a copy of Fantasies, being then about 16 years old, had been to me what the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. Here begins the new life. I started to confess how long that life had delayed in the region of imagination merely, how slowly and reluctantly I had come to admit that his Christendom had more than an accidental connection with it, how hard I had tried not to see that the true name of the quality which first met me in his books is holiness. He laid his hand on mine and stopped me. Son, he said, your love, all love, is of inexpressible value to me. but." it may save precious time. Here he suddenly looked very scotch. If I inform ye that I am already well acquainted with these biographical details. In fact, I've noticed that your memory misleads you on one or two particulars. Oh, said I, and became still. Ye had started, said my teacher, to talk of something more profitable. Sir, said I, it I had almost forgotten it, and I have no anxiety about the answer now, though I have still a curiosity. It is about these ghosts. Do any of them stay? Can they stay? Is any real choice offered to them? How do they come to be here? Did ye never hear of the refrigerium? A man with your advantages might have read of it in Prudentius, not to mention Jeremy Taylor. The name is familiar, sir, but I'm afraid I've forgotten what it means. It means that the damned have holidays, excursions, you understand. 
excursions to this country? For those that will take them, of course, most of the silly creatures don't. They prefer taking trips back to Earth. They go and play tricks on the poor daft women you call mediums. They go and try to assert their ownership of some house that once belonged to them, and then ye get what's called a haunting, or they go and spy on their children, or literary ghosts hang about public libraries to see if anyone's still reading their books. But if they come here, they can really stay. Aye, you'll have, you'll have heard that the Emperor Trajan did. But I don't understand, is judgment not final? Is there really a way out of hell into heaven? It depends on the way you're using the words. If they leave that gray town behind, it will not have been hell. To any that leaves it, it is purgatory. And perhaps you'd better not call this country heaven, not deep heaven, you understand. Here he smiled at me. You can call it the valley of the shadow of life. And yet to those who stay here, it will have been heaven from the first. And you can call these sad streets in the town yonder the valley of the shadow of death. But to those who remain there, they will have been hell even from the beginning. I suppose he saw that I looked puzzled, for presently he spoke again. Son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. When Anodos looked through the door of the timeless, he brought no message back. But you can get some likeness of it if you if you say that both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. Not only this valley, but all their earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight in that town, but all their life on earth too, will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. Okay. So, a an analogy occurs to me. No doubt everybody in this room has suffered, um, some in, in profound ways. Um, misfortune, physical, you know, ailments, trauma, abuse, um, all, all sorts of things. Um, and, and for each person, you know, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat relativistic, right? Because you, you could never, I mean, we, we tend to, to compare our suffering, um, and it's, it's common to perhaps try to compare and say, well, maybe I've had it worse than the other person, but, but really, each person has had it as, as bad as they've had it, and it's real for that person. It's real suffering for that person. Now, 
for, for the person who's had that real suffering and um, can look back on that real suffering or, or even failing, you know, failings, and, and in hindsight look back on it and has come out the other side of it and has grown from it and learned from it and actually can, can look back on that and can see it as blessing you can find, you can see the analogy of, of what he's talking about here, of how he can look back on, on even all of the misfortune and all of the, the tribulation of earth, and now that a person is in heaven, can see how that contributed to them being in heaven. Does that make sense? Um, and and contrary wise, contrary wise, um, a person who, well, I think a lot of people have had this experience. Um, when, when, when we've been wronged greatly and we're still in the midst of holding on to the resentment, right? If you've had that experience where you're, you're still holding on to it because you want to, damn it. <laughs> I want to hold on to it right now because it's real and I want to. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, in a sense, there's a right to hold on to it because when a person has been injured, there, there is kind of a right to hold on to it. And um, when you're in the midst of holding on to it, you know that it doesn't help. You know, you know it's not helping you, but you still want to hold on to it. And yet at the same time, it's, it's maybe not destroying you depending on the level of, of resentment, you know, that you're holding on to, but it's, it's harming you in some way. And yet you're still going to hold on to it. And some people will hold on to it. To, to really a point at which it, it can even sort of destroy them or destroy relationships, you know, that kind of resentment uh, to, to a great detriment in their life. And from that perspective then, right, they can look back onto that, that sort of negativity. And even though something happened to them, they didn't contribute to it, they made a decision at a certain point to hold on to that and create something out of it, which took an act of their will, which then contributed to, to you know, more negative things and even sin, you know, entering into the equation, which, which became a, a damnable thing in their life, okay? Um, so th this is how we can look at sort of, you know, the, 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 the root of things um, that we perhaps are responsible or aren't responsible for but how we can sort of latch onto them and how we can attribute our activity to them being good or bad and how they can actually, as, as, you know, as time moves down the road, how we can see how they're blessed or how they're, they've actually contributed detrimentally to our lives. And if you then relay that to the, relate that to, the, to eternity, you can see it in the same way. So, if I look at um, in my life, there, I mean, there's just no doubt that the, the ways in which I have failed have contributed to the greatest amount of growth. I mean, there's just no doubt. I, I, can't, I can't even, there, there's no way that my successes, the successes always contribute more to my ego than they do to my growth. <laughs> they just do. And it's always the temptation that they will do so. It's always the temptation, for me, just being honest. But the failures never do. 
they would never contribute to my ego because they cannot. But they always contribute to reflection and, you know, the, the opportunity for me to say, okay, well, what can I, how can I get better? You know, how can I, how can I learn from this? How can I be more reflective, you know, and, and how can I choose to make this, you know, a, a growth experience from, from the smallest things to the, to the biggest things. I mean, it's just true. Um, and then from my perspective now, looking back on things, I can see great blessedness in that failure, right? And, and I'm sure that many of you would, would share that, that, that experience. And so there, there's great goodness in that. So that's, that's, I think that's clearly what, what, what McDonald is saying about people who are in heaven, both in their relationship to this, to this gray town, as well as their life on earth, and again, this isn't so much a, you know, Lewis isn't really doing hard theology here, okay? So he's not necessarily saying this is how he conceives of, of heaven and, and hell and purgatory and earth. But, um, but, you know, he is also kind of saying, look, you know, we can, we can begin to look at our earthly existence as the beginning of heaven for us, but we can't do it until we're in heaven. And so then we're in heaven. When we're in heaven, if you're looking back at our entire existence, then every step of the way is a beginning of heaven, in a sense. You know, our existence on earth and the trials and tribulations on earth and then in purgatory, all of it contributes to where we're at in the moment and vice versa. So then every, everything that would contribute to a person being in hell contributed to their damnation, as it were. Um, so the people in the Greytown who ultimately ended up staying um, can look back at the Greytown not as hell, but as the beginnings of heaven. But the people who go back to the Greytown, for them it was hell all along. Does that make sense? Maybe that was more of an explanation than you needed. Um, Now I've lost my place. Oh, there we go. Is that not very hard, sir? I mean, that this is the real sense of what they will say in the actual language of the lost. The words will be different, no doubt. One will say he has always served his country right or wrong, and another that he has sacrificed everything to his art, and some that they're, they've never been taken in, and some that, thank God, they've always looked after number one, and nearly all that at least they've been true to themselves. And the saved? Ah, the saved. What happens to them is best described as the opposite of a mirage. What seemed when they entered it to be the veil of misery turns out, when they look back, to have been a well. And where present experience saw only salt deserts, memory truthfully records that the pools were full of water then those people are right who say that heaven and hell are only states of mind. Hush, he said sternly, do not blaspheme. Hell is a state of mind, ye never said a truer word. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. 
But there is a real choice after death. My Roman Catholic friends would be surprised, for to them, souls in purgatory are already saved. And my Protestant friends would like it no better, for they'd say that the tree lies as it falls. They're both right, maybe. Do not fash yourself with such questions. You, can't, you cannot fully understand the relations of choice and time till ye are beyond both. And ye were not brought here to study such curiosities. What concerns you is the nature of the choice itself and that you can watch them making. So, you know, this is an important question for us to entertain because Roman Catholic theology is clear that the choice happens before death. Okay. Um, admittedly, what does it mean to choose after death? Um, you know, after death, it's, it's difficult for us to, to say anything after death except for that which has already been revealed to us. But from what we understand and what we believe has been revealed, um, you know, the, the church teaches that decisions have to be made before a person dies. Um, now, there is space in between death, you know, the, 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 the point at which a soul leaves the body, right? Because death, the theological definition of death is the separation of the soul from the body. Not, not the, the physiological definition of death, of which there are generally uh, two. There can be brain death as well as cardiac death, right? The, the, um, well, there's, there's a number of different criteria, but the, the heart ceasing to beat and, you know, uh, other criteria as well that determine death as well as, um, as, as total brain death. And that's, that's even a debate itself. But anyway... That's the physiological, those are physiological definitions of death. The theological definition of death is the separation of the soul from the body. When does that happen? That doesn't necessarily happen coterminous with physiological death. So is there time in between? You know, how does, you know, how, how does that happen? Can decision be made in between those moments? We don't know. Um, but the church does say that decision for or against Christ needs to be made before um, a person dies. Um, because after death, a person no longer has the ability to repent. So that um, all those who enter purgatory, yes, are saved. Nobody, nobody who goes to purgatory ends up in hell. Everybody who gets into purgatory is saved, is the, is the teaching of the church. Okay? Um, but we, we also have to be clear that, you know, the church does not say that we completely understand everything that happens after death um, because the church doesn't say that. The church says hell does exist, but the church has never taught that anybody is actually in hell, that any souls actually been to hell except for Satan and his, you know, his, his demons. But the church has never said any soul that has died has ever ended up in hell which doesn't mean that there isn't anyone there, but it's just never said that anyone has gone there. But it has said that hell exists because by necessity, um, if people can choose to accept salvation, people have to be able to choose not to accept salvation. Therefore, there must be a place for those who would not choose it, which is where Satan is, etc. Okay. Um, 
Well, sir, I said, that also needs explaining. What do they choose, these souls who go back? I have yet seen no others, and how can they choose it? Milton was right, said my teacher. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. So, so we've seen that with the, the ghosts that have refused to stay. There's always something they prefer to stain, right? And we're going to see that even more play out, you know, more specifically with, with a, a couple of the souls that we meet tonight. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. You call it the sulks. But in adult life, it has a hundred fine names. Achilles' wrath and Coriolanus' grandeur, revenge and injured merit and self-respect and tragic greatness and proper pride. Then is no one lost through the undignified vices, sir? through mere sensuality. Some are, no doubt. The sensualist, I'll allow ye, begins by pursuing a real pleasure, though a small one. His sin is the less. But the time comes on when, though the pleasure becomes less and less, and the craving fiercer and fiercer, and though he knows that joy can never come that way, yet he prefers to joy the mere fondling of unappeasable lust and would not have it taken from him. He'd fight to the death to keep it. He'd like He'd like well to be able to scratch, but even when he can scratch no more, he'd rather itch than not. What's, what's interesting about this section here, and again, the, the theologians have been clear about this for ages, as have the saints, the, uh, the greatest sins are not the sins of sensuality. The greatest sins are the, the sins of spirituality, the sins of pride, the sins of envy, um, uh, the sins of uh, um, the sins of our spiritual nature, not of our physical nature. Uh, the sins of, of lust. The sins of um, uh, the sins of uh, gluttony. You know, the sins of our lower nature are not the worst sins. Which is, from my perspective as a confessor, it's just interesting because uh, confessees always treat it the opposite way. Which given that you're all confessees, as am I. Uh, it's just interesting to reflect on what we feel the most guilty about. We f and I think the reason we feel the most guilty about it is because we, when, we, uh, when we sin according to our lo lower nature, the, the theologians would speak of it as we make ourselves more like, uh, like the beasts than we do make ourselves more like the angels. Right? Because our, our higher nature, our spiritual nature, is that which corresponds to the angels, if you will, and to God. And our physical nature is what more corresponds to, to the other beasts, etc. So there's a certain um, debasing of our nature, which is why we tend to be more embarrassed of that than, you know, that's why there's more shame attached to it as opposed to... Anyway, but when it comes to which is more serious, this is the, the trick. And this is the, the problem with it is we ought not confuse which is more serious with which we have more shame about and, and which is more deadly to us uh, spiritually. Um, he was silent for a few minutes and then began again. You understand 
there are innumerable forms of this choice, sometimes forms that one hardly thought of at all on earth. There was a creature here, came here not long ago and went back. Sir Archibald, they called him. In his earthly life, he'd been interested in nothing but survival. He'd written a whole shelf full of books about it. He began by being philosophical, but in the end, he took up psychical research. It grew to be his only occupation, experimenting, lecturing, running a magazine, and traveling too, digging out queer stories among Tibetan lamas and being initiated into brotherhoods in Central Africa. Proofs and more proofs, and then more proofs again were what he wanted. It drove him mad if he ever saw anyone taking an interest in anything else. He got into trouble during one of your wars for running up and down the country telling them not to fight because it wasted a lot of money that ought to be spent on research. Well, in good time, the poor creature died and came here. And there was no power in the universe would have prevented him staying and going on to the mountains. But do you think that did him any good? This country was no use to him at all. Everyone here had survived already. Nobody took the least interest in the question. There was nothing more to prove. His occupation was clean gone. Of course, if he would ha only have admitted that he'd mistaken the means for the end and had a good laugh at himself, he could have begun all over again like a little child and entered into joy. But he would not do that. He cared nothing about joy. In the end, he went away. How fantastic, said I. Do you think so, said the teacher with a piercing glance. It is nearer to such as you than you think. There have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity they, that they never gave a thought to Christ. Man, you see it in smaller matters. Did you never know a lover of books that, with all his first editions and signed copies, had lost the power to read them? Or an organizer of charities that had lost all love for the poor? It is the subtlest of all the snares. Moved by a desire to change the subject... <laughs> Do you get the humor there? All right, moved by a desire to change the subject, I asked why the solid people, since they were full of love, did not go down into hell to rescue the ghosts. Why were they content simply to meet them on the plane? One would have expected a more militant charity. You will understand that better, perhaps, before you go, said he. In the meantime, I must tell you they have come further for the sake of the ghosts than you can understand. Every one of us lives only to journey further and further into the mountains. Every one of us has interrupted that journey and retraced immeasurable distances to come down today on the mere chance of saving some ghost. Of course, it is also joy to do so, but you cannot blame us for that. And it would be no use to come further even if it were possible. The sane would do no good if they made themselves mad to help madmen. But what of the poor ghosts who never get into the omnibus at all? Everyone who wishes it does, never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. 
Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. At this moment, we were suddenly interrupted by the thin voice of a ghost talking at an enormous speed. Looking behind us, we saw the creature. It was addressing one of the solid people and was doing so too busily to notice us. Every now and then, the solid spirit tried to get in a word, but without success. The ghost's talk was like this. Oh, my dear, I've had such a dreadful time. I don't know how I ever got here at all. I was coming with Eleanor Stone, and we'd arranged the whole thing, and we were to meet at the corner of Sink Street. I made it perfectly plain because I knew what she was like, and if I told her once, I told her a hundred times, I would not meet her outside that dreadful Marjorie Banks woman's house, not after the way she treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that happened to me. I've been dying to tell you because I felt sure you'd tell me I acted rightly. No, wait a moment, dear, till I've told you. I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all fixed up. She was to do the cooking, and I was to look after the house, and I did think I was going to be comfortable after all I'd been through. But she turned out to be so changed, absolutely selfish, and not a particle of sympathy for anyone but herself. And as I once said to her, I do think I'm entitled to a little consideration because you at least lived out your time. But I oughtn't to have been here for years and years yet. Oh, but of course I'm forgetting you don't know. I was murdered, simply murdered, dear. That man should never have operated. I ought to be alive today, and they simply starved me in that dreadful nursing home. And no one ever came near me, and the shrill, monotonous whine died away as the speaker, still accompanied by the bright patience at her side, moved out of hearing. What troubles you, son, said, asked my teacher. I am troubled, sir, said I, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to be even in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who has gotten into a habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and rest and change would do her all right. That is what she once was. That is maybe what she still is. If so, she certainly will be cured. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. I should have thought there was no doubt about that. Aye, but you misunderstood me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumbler. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's, only, if there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. But come, you are here to watch and listen. Lean on my arm and we'll go for a little walk. I obeyed. To lean on the arm of someone older than myself was an experience that carried me back to childhood. And with this support, I found the going tolerable, so much so indeed, that I flattered myself 
my feet were already growing more solid, until a glance at the poor transparent shapes convinced me that I owed all this ease to the strong arm of the teacher. Perhaps it was because of his presence that my other senses also appeared to be quickened. I noticed scents in the air which had hitherto escaped me and the country put on new beauties. There was water everywhere and tiny flowers quivering in the early breeze. Far off in the woods we saw deer glancing past and once a sleek panther came purring to my companion's side. We also saw many of the ghosts. Let me see her. Okay, yes, we do meet a ghost here, okay. I think the most pitiable was a female ghost. Her trouble was that the very opposite of which afflicted the other, the lady frightened by the unicorns. This one seemed quite unaware of her phantasmal appearance. More than one of the solid people tried to talk to her, and at first I was quite at a loss to understand her behavior to them. She appeared to be contorting... <laughs> I just remembered what this one's about. She appeared to, to be contorting her all but invisible face and writhing her smoke-like body in a quite meaningless fashion. At last I came to the conclusion, incredible as it seemed, that she supposed herself still capable of attracting them and was trying to do so. She was a thing that had become incapable of conceiving conversation save as a means to that end. She's trying to seduce all the, all the <laughs> other people. If a corpse already liquid with decay had arisen from the coffin, smeared, it gu smeared its gums with lipstick, and attempted a flirtation, the result could not have been more appalling. In the end, she muttered, stupid creatures, and turned back to the bus. This put me in mind to ask my teacher what he thought of the affair with the unicorns. It will maybe have succeeded, he said. You will have divined that he meant to frighten her, not that fear itself could make her less a ghost, but if it took her mind a moment off herself, there might in that moment be a chance. I have seen them saved so. Remember, that ghost was so focused on herself, and then that herd of unicorns came, and, and then you know he turned and, and rushed off. We met several ghosts that had come so near to heaven only in order to tell the celestials about hell, Indeed, this is one of the commonest types. Others who had perhaps been, like myself, teachers of some kind, actually wanted to give lectures about it. They brought fat notebooks full of statistics and maps, and one of them a magic lantern. Some wanted to tell anecdotes of the notorious sinners of all ages whom they had met below. But the most part seemed to think that the mere fact of having contrived for themselves so much misery gave them a kind of superiority. You've led a sheltered life, they bawled. You don't know the seamy side. We'll tell you. We'll give you some hard facts, as if to tinge heaven with infernal images and colors had been the only purpose for which they came. All alike, so far as I could judge from my own exploration of the lower world, were wholly unreliable, and all equally incurious about the country in which they had arrived. They repelled every attempt to teach them, and when they found that nobody listened to them, they went back, one by one, to the bus. This curious wish to describe hell turned out, however, to be only the mildest form of a desire very common among the ghosts, the, de the desire to extend hell, to bring it bodily, if they could, into heaven. They were tub-thumping ghosts who, in thin, bat-like voices, urged the blessed spirits to shake off their fetters, to escape from their imprisonment in happiness, 
to tear down their mountains with their hands to seize heaven for their own. Hell offered her cooperation. They were planning ghosts who planning ghosts who implored them to dam the river, cut down the trees, kill the animals, build a mountain railway, smooth out the horrible grass and moss and heather with asphalt. There were materialistic ghosts who informed the, the immortals that they were deluded. There were, there were no life after death, and this whole country was a hallucination. There were ghosts, plain and simple, mere bogies, fully conscious of their own decay, who had accepted the traditional role of the specter and seemed to hope they could frighten someone. I had had no idea that this w desire was possible, but my teacher reminded me that the pleasure of frightening is by no means unknown on earth. And also of Tacitus is saying, they terrify lest they should fear. When the debris of a decayed human soul finds itself crumbling into ghosthood and realizes, I myself am now that which all humanity has feared, I am just that cold churchyard shadow, that horrible thing which cannot be, yet somehow is, then to terrify others appears to it an escape from the doom of being a ghost, yet still fearing ghosts, fearing even the ghost it is. For to be afraid of oneself is the last horror. But beyond all these, I saw other grotesque phantoms in which hardly a trace of the human form remained. Monsters who had faced the journey to the bus stop, perhaps for them it was thousands of miles, and come up to the country of the shadow of life and limped far into it over the torturing grass, only to spit and gibber out in one ecstasy of hatred their envy and what is harder to understand, their contempt of joy. The voyage seemed to them a small price to pay if, only one, if once, only once, within sight of that eternal dawn, they could tell the prigs, the toffs, the sanctimonious humbugs, the snobs, the haves, what they thought of them. How do they come to be here at all, I asked my teacher. I have seen that kind converted, said he, when those you would think less deeply damned have gone back. Those that hate goodness are sometimes nearer than those that know nothing at all about it and think they have it already. Wished now, <laughs> said my teacher suddenly. We were standing close to some bushes and beyond them I saw one of the solid people in a ghost who had apparently just met that, who had apparently just that moment met. The outlines of the ghost looked vaguely familiar, but I soon realized that what I had seen on earth was not the man himself, but photographs of him in the papers. He had been a famous artist. God, said the ghost, glancing around the landscape. God what, asked the spirit. What do you mean, God what, asked the ghost. In our grammar, God is a noun. Oh, I see. I only meant by gum or something of the sort. I meant, well, all this. It's, it's, I should like to paint this. I shouldn't bother about that just at present if I were you. Look here, isn't one going to be allowed to go on painting? Looking comes first. But I've had my look. I've seen just what I want to do. God, I wish I'd thought of bringing my things with me. The spirit shook his head, scattering light from his hair as he did so. That sort of thing's no good here, he said. What do you mean, said the ghost? When you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. But here you are having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There is no good telling us about this country, for we see it already. 
In fact, we see it better than you do. Then there's never going to be any point in painting here. I don't say that. When you've grown into a person, it's all right. We all had to do it. There will be some things which you'll see better than anyone else. One of the things you'll want to do will be to tell us about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to see. Come and see. He is endless. Come and feed. There was a little pause. That will be delightful, said the ghost presently in a rather dull voice. Come then, said the spirit, offering it his arm. How soon do you think I could begin painting, it asked. The spirit broke into laughter. Don't you see? You'll never paint at all if that's what you're thinking about, he said. What do you mean? Why, if you are interested in the country only for the sake of painting it, you'll never learn to see the country. But that's just how a real artist is interested in the country. No, you're forgetting, said the spirit. That's, that was not how you began. Light itself was your first love. You loved paint only as a means of telling about light. Oh, that's ages ago, said the ghost. One grows out of that. Of course, you haven't seen my later works. One becomes more and more interested in paint for its own sake. One does indeed. I also had to recover from that. It was all a snare. Ink and catgut and paint were necessary down there. But they also are dangerous stimulants. Every poet and musician and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from love of the thing he tells to the love of the telling, till down in deep hell they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. For it doesn't stop at being interested in paint, you know. They sink lower, become interested in their own personalities, and then in nothing but their own reputations. I don't think I'm much troubled in that way, said the ghost stiffly. That's excellent, said the spirit. Not many of us had got quite got, got over it when we first arrived. But if there is any of that inflammation left, it will be cured when you come to the fountain. What fountain's that? It's up there in the mountains, said the spirit, very cold and clear between two green hills, a little like lathe. When you have drunk of it, you forget forever proprietorship of your own works. You enjoy them just as if you were someone else's, without pride and without modesty. That'll be grand, said the ghost, without enthusiasm. Well, come, said the spirit, and for a few paces he supported the hobbling shadow forward to the east. Of course, said the ghost, as if speaking to itself, there will always be interesting people to meet. Everyone will be interesting. Oh, ah, yes, to be sure. I was thinking of people in our own line. Shall I meet Claude or Cezanne or... Sooner or later, if they're here. But don't you know? Well, of course not. I've only been here a few years. All the chances are against my having run across them. They are a good many of us. There are a good many of us, you know. But surely in the case of distinguished people, you'd hear. But they aren't distinguished, no more than anyone else. Don't you understand? The glory flows into everyone and back from everyone, like light and mirrors. But the light's the thing. Do you mean there are no famous men? They are all famous. They are all known, remembered, recognized by the only mind that can give a perfect judgment. Oh, of course, in that sense, said the ghost. Don't stop, said the spirit, making to lead him still forward. One must be content with one's reputation among pos posterity then, said the ghost. My friend, said the spirit, don't you know? Know what? that you and I are, are already completely forgotten on earth. Eh, what's that? exclaimed the ghost. 
disengaging its arm? Do you mean those damn neo-regionalists have won after all? Lord love you, yes, said the spirit, once more shaking and shining with laughter. You couldn't get five pounds for any picture of mine or even of yours in Europe or America today. We're dead out of fashion. I must be off at once, said the ghost. Let me go. Damn it all, one has one's duty to the future of art. I must go back to my friends. I must write an article. There must be a manifesto. We must start a periodical. We must have publicity. Let me go. This is beyond a joke. And without listening to the spirit's reply, the specter vanished. Okay, so obviously this one was very concerned about his reputation. That's pretty obvious. Um, but also I think, I think theologically the... Um, you know, one of the, the main points here has to do with, with something you find in theology, which is all identity in heaven is subsumed into the one identity of Christ. That um, theologically this is spoken of as, even, even on earth, that, that what it means to, to become holy is that the self becomes loses itself and becomes a self in Christ. That the goal for the person is um, not to lose their individuality, that the self always remains a self, um, right? So that, that even all of, these, all of these souls remain themselves, but um, they become a self, if you will, serving the one self, right? That becoming, serving the one God and subsumed into that one um, that one goodness so that, you know, as this painter is worried about his own reputation, being known, where are all the other famous people? I was famous on earth. I want to be famous in heaven. Well, everybody is equal in that sense. You know, no one stands out in the sense in which you mean in heaven, right? And he obviously just couldn't stand to be just one of the, one of the people in heaven. He needed to he needed to be very, very important. All right, let's do 10. This conversation we also overheard. That is quite, quite out of the question, said a female ghost to one of the bright women. I should not dream of staying if I'm expected to meet Robert. I'm ready to forgive him, of course, but anything more is quite impossible. How he comes to be here, but that is your affair. But if you have forgiven him, said the other, surely I forgive him as a Christian, said the ghost. But there are some things one can never forget. But I don't understand, began the she-spirit. Exactly, said the ghost with a little laugh. You never did. You always thought Robert could do no wrong. I know. Please don't interrupt for one moment. You haven't the faintest conception of what I went through with your dear Robert. The ingratitude. It was I who made a man of him. Sacrificed my whole life to him. And what was my reward? Absolute, utter selfishness. No, but listen, he was pottering along on about 600 a year when I married him. And mark my words, Hilda, he'd have been in that position to the day of his death if it hadn't been for me. <laughs> this, I, I read this before I was married. It, it convinced me about celibacy. Um, it was I who had to drive him every step of the way. He hadn't a spark of ambition. It was like trying to lift a sack of coal. I had to positively nag him to take on that extra work in the other department, though it was really the beginning of everything for him, the laziness of men. He said, if you please, he couldn't work more than 13 hours a day. 
as if I weren't working far longer, for my day's work wasn't over when his was. I had to keep him going all evening, if you understand what I mean. If he'd had his way, he'd have just sat in an armchair and sulked when dinner was over. It was I who had to draw him out of himself and brighten him up and make conversation, with no help from him, of course. Sometimes he didn't even listen. As I said to him, I should have thought good manners, if nothing else, he'd seemed to have forgotten that I was a lady, even if I had married him. And all the time I was working my fingers to the bone for him, and without the slightest appreciation. I used to spend simply hours arranging flowers to make that pokey little house nice. And instead of thanking me, what do you think he said? He said he wished I wouldn't fill up the writing desk with them when he wanted to use it. And there was a perfectly frightful fuss one evening because I'd spilled one of the vases over some papers of his. If was, it was all nonsense, really, because they weren't anything to do with his work. He had some silly idea of writing a book in those days, as if he could. I cured him of that in the end. No, Hilda, you must listen to me. The trouble I went to, entertaining. Robert's idea was that if he'd just slink off by himself every now and then to see what he called his old friends and leave me to amuse myself. But I knew from the first that those friends were doing him no good. No, Robert, said I, your friends are now mine. It is my duty to have them here. However tired I am and however little we can afford it, You'd have thought that would have been enough, but they did come for a bit. That is where I had to use a certain amount of tact. A woman who has her wits about her can always drop in a word here and there. I wanted Robert to see them against a different background. They weren't quite at their ease somehow in my drawing room, not at their best. I couldn't help laughing sometimes. Of course, Robert was uncomfortable while the treatment was going on, but it was all for his own good in the end. None of that set were friends of his any longer by the end of the first year. And then he got the new job, a great step up, but what do you think? Instead of realizing that we now had a chance to spread out a bit, all he said was, well, now for God's sake, let's have some peace. That nearly finished me. I nearly gave him up altogether, but I knew my duty. I have always done my duty. You can't believe the work I had getting him to agree to a bigger house and then finding a house. I wouldn't have grudged it one scrap if only he'd had taken it in the right spirit, if only he'd seen the fun of it all. If he'd, only, if he'd been a different sort of man, it would have been fun meeting him on the doorstep as he came back from the office and saying, come along, Bob's no time for dinner tonight. I've just heard of, the, of a house near Watford and I've got the keys and we can get there and back by one o'clock. But with him, it was perfect misery, Hilda, for by, by this time, your wonderful Robert was turning into the sort of man who cares about nothing but food. Well, I got him into the new house at last. Yes, I know. It was a little more than we could really afford at the moment, but all sorts of things were opening out before him. And of course, I began to entertain properly. No more of his sort of friends. Thank you. I was doing it all for his sake. Every useful friend he had ever made was due to me. Naturally, I had to dress well. They ought to have been the happiest years of both our lives. If they weren't, he had no one but himself to thank. Oh, he was a maddening man, simply maddening. He just set himself to get old and silent and grumpy, just sank into himself. He could have looked years younger if he'd taken the trouble. He needn't have walked with a stoop. I'm sure I warned him about that often enough. He was the most miserable host. Whenever we gave a party, everything rested on my shoulders. Robert was simply a wet blanket. 
As I said to him, and I said once, I said it a hundred times, he hadn't always been like that. There had been a time when he took an interest in all sorts of things, and he'd been quite ready to make friends. What on earth is coming over you, I used to say, but now he just didn't answer at all. He would sit staring at me with his great big eyes. I came to hate a man with dark eyes, and I know it now, just hating me. That was my reward after all I'd done, sheer, wicked, senseless hatred. At the very moment when he was a richer man than he'd ever dreamed of being. As I used to say to him, Robert, you sim you're simply letting yourself go to seed. The younger men who came to the house, it wasn't my fault if they liked me better than my old bear of a husband and used, used to laugh at him. I did my duty to the very end. I forced him to take exercise. That was really my chief reason for keeping a great Dane. I kept on giving parties. I took him for the most wonderful holidays. I saw that he didn't drink too much. Even when things became desperate, I encouraged him to take up his writing again. It couldn't do any harm by then. How could I help it if he did have a nervous breakdown in the end? My conscience is clear. I've done my duty by him if ever a woman has. So you see why it would be impossible to, and yet, I don't know. I believe I've changed my mind. I'll make them a fair offer, Hilda. I will not meet him if it means just meeting him and no more. But if I'm given a free hand, I'll, t I'll take charge of him again. I will take up my burden once more. But I must have a free hand. With all the time one would have here, I believe I could still make something of him, somewhere quiet to ourselves. Wouldn't that be a good plan? He's not fit to be on his own. Put me in charge of him. He wants a firm handling. I know him better than you do. What's that? No, give him to me, do you hear? Don't consult him. Just give him to me. I'm his wife, aren't I? I was only beginning. There's lots, lots, lots of things I still want to do with him. No, listen, Hilda, please, please. I'm so miserable. I must have something to do, to do things to. It's simply frightful down there. No one minds about me at all. I can't alter them. It's dreadful to see them all sitting about and not be able to do anything with them. Give him back to me. Why should he have everything his own way? It's not good for him. It isn't right. It's not fair. I want Robert. What right have you to keep him from me? I hate you. How can I pay him out if you won't let me have him? The ghost, which had towered up like a dying candle flame, snapped suddenly. A sour, dry smell lingered in the air for a moment, and then there was no ghost to be seen. Okay, so perhaps her issue might be Controlling? Yes. <laughs> and, and I would be lying if I said I've never met anyone like that. Um, and so, you know, again, going back to, you know, the, the, the thing with George MacDonald. And, you know, I, I realize, you know, we're going through this narrative and, and you know, it's, it's not really a lecture, so I'm not really getting to the point. So you have to sort of journey with me through the, the narrative. But the whole point of it all is, ultimately, what I want you to reflect on isn't so much, I mean, it's, it, it is about the individual sort of ghosts and the fact that they have to give something up to get into heaven. But ultimately, what I want you to reflect on is you. Because there's a really, usually every person has a thing. You know, there's a thing, you got a thing. You know, there's like one thing, there, there's usually one big sin that each of us has, it's sort of dominant. Um, and when we can 
isolate that or, or figure out what that is, that goes a long way toward spiritual growth and beginning to make great strides. Okay, let's do one more. Chapter 11. One of the most painful meetings we witnessed was between a woman's ghost and a bright spirit who had apparently been her brother. They must have met only a moment before we ran across them, for the ghost was just saying in a tone of unconcealed disappointment, Oh, Reginald, it's you, is it? Yes, dear, said the spirit. I know you expected someone else. Can you? I hope you can be a little glad to see even me for the present. I did think Michael would have come, said the ghost, and then almost fiercely, He is here, of course. He's up there, far up in the mountains. Why hasn't he come to meet me? Didn't he know? My dear, don't worry. It will all come right presently. It wouldn't have done, not yet. He wouldn't be able to see or hear you as you are at present. You'd be totally invisible to Michael, but we'll soon build you up. I should have thought if you can see me, my own son could. It doesn't always happen like that. You see, I have specialized in this sort of work. Oh, it's work, is it? Snapped the ghost. Then after a pause, well, when am I going to be allowed to see him? There's no question of being allowed, Pam. As soon as it's possible for him to see you, of course he will. You need to be thickened up a bit. How? Said the ghost. The monosyllable was hard and a little threatening. I'm afraid the first step is a hard one, said the spirit, but after that, you'll go on like a house on fire. You will become solid enough for Michael to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. I don't say more than Michael, not as a beginning. That will come later. It's only the little germ of a desire for God that we need to start the process. Oh, you mean religion and all that sort of thing. This is hardly the moment, and from you of all people. Well, never mind. I'll do whatever's necessary. What do you want me to do? Come on. The sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy. I'm quite ready. But Pam, do you think? Don't you see that you are not beginning at all as long as you are in that state of mind? You're treating God only as a means to Michael. But the whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. You wouldn't talk like that if you were a mother. You mean if I were only a mother? But there is no such thing as being only a mother. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. That relation is older and closer. No, listen, Pam. He also loves. He also has suffered. He also has waited a long time. If he loved me, he'd let me see my boy. If he loved me, why did he take Michael away from me? I wasn't going to say anything about that, but it's pretty hard to forgive, you know. But he had to take Michael away partly for Michael's sake. I'm sure I did my best to make Michael happy. I gave up my whole life. Human beings can't make one another really happy for long. And secondly, for your sake, he wanted your merely instinctive love for your child to turn into something better. He wanted you, you to love Michael as he understands love. You cannot love a fellow creature fully till you love God. Sometimes this conversion can be done while the instinctive love is still gratified but there was, it seems, no chance of that in your case. The instinct was uncontrolled and fierce and monomaniac. Ask your daughter or your husband. Ask your own mother. You haven't once thought of her. The only remedy was to take away its object. It was a case for surgery. 
when that first kind of love was thwarted, then there was just a chance that in the loneliness and the silence, something else might begin to grow. This is all nonsense, cruel and wicked nonsense. What right have you to say things like that about mother love? It is the highest and holiness feeling in human nature. Pam, Pam, no natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. My love for Michael would never have gone bad, not if we'd lived together for, a million, for millions of years. You are mistaken, and you must know. Haven't you met down there mothers who have their sons with them in hell? Does their love make them happy? If you mean people like the Guthrie woman and her dreadful Bobby, of course not. I hope you're not suggesting, if I had Michael, I'd be perfectly happy even in that town. I wouldn't be always talking about him till everyone hated the sound of his name, which is what Winifred Guthrie does about her brat. I wouldn't quarrel with people for not taking enough notice of him and then be furiously jealous if they did. I wouldn't go about whining and complaining that he wasn't nice to me, because of course he would be nice. Don't you dare suggest that Michael could ever become like that Guthrie boy. There are some things I won't stand. What you have seen in the Guthrie boy is what natural affection turns to in the end if it will not be converted. It's a lie, a wicked, cruel lie. How could anyone love their son more than I did? Haven't I lived only for his memory all these years? That was rather a mistake, Pam. In your heart of hearts, you know it was a mistake. What was a mistake? All that 10 years ritual of grief, keeping his room as exactly as he'd left it, keeping anniversaries, refusing to leave the house, though Dick and Muriel were both wretched there. Of course, they didn't care. I know that. I soon learned to expel, expect no real sympathy from them. You're wrong. No man ever felt his son's death more than Dick. Not many girls love their brothers better than Muriel. It wasn't against Michael they revolted. It was against you, against having their whole life dominated by the tyranny of the past, and not really even Michael's past, but your past. You are heartless. Everyone is heartless. The past was all I had. It was all you chose to have. It was the wrong way to deal with a sorrow. It was Egyptian, like embalming a dead body. Oh, of course, I'm wrong. Everything I say or do is wrong according to you. But of course, said the spirit, shining with love and mirth so that my eyes were dazzled. That's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong. That's the great joke. There's no need to go on pretending one was right. After all, we begin living. After all that, we begin living. How dare you laugh about it? Give me my boy. Do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one had a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy, and I mean to have him. He is mine, do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. He will be, Pam. Everything will be yours. God himself will be yours, but not that way. Nothing can be yours by nature. What? Not my own son, born out of my own body? And where is your own body now? Don't you know that nature draws to an end? Look, the sun is coming over the mountains there. It will be up at any moment now. Michael is mine. How yours? You didn't make him. Nature made him to grow in your body without your will, even against your will. 
you sometimes forget that you didn't intend to have a baby then at all. Michael was originally an accident. Who told you that, said the ghost, and then recovering herself. It's a lie, it's not true, and it's no business of yours. I hate your religion, and I hate and despise your God. I believe in a God of love. And yet, Pam, you have no love at this moment for your own mother or for me. Oh, I see, that's the trouble, is it? Really, Reginald? The idea of your being hurt because, Lord love you, said the spirit with a great laugh. You needn't bother about that. Don't you know that you can't hurt anyone in this country? The ghost was silent and open-mouthed for a moment, more wilted, I thought, by this reassurance than by anything else that had been said. Come, we'll go a bit further, said my teacher, laying his hand on my arm. All right, let's stop there. We'll stop mid-chapter. So with that one, um, you know, again, some, some interesting uh, theological principles. Obviously, you know, this, this poor woman's son died. Um, and she lived with, as you know, as as does happen tragically, um, mothers um, having to live, you know, having to bury their children and and living in that pain. But at, and I just kind of talked about it, you know, um, what we choose to do with pain and what we, you know, how we use how we choose to live in resentment, and what we can do with that, and um, and how that can actually certain choices can lead to damnable consequences. And from, from a certain point of view, one could say, well, but that, that's legitimate pain. And it's true. That is legitimate pain, right, for a parent to, uh, for a parent to have to, to bury their child. However, it's also true that there is greater love than a parent's love for their child. There's greater love. God's love is greater for us than any of us could possibly love because God's love is perfect and God's love is antecedent than any of our love for anyone else. It's, it's primary, right? It comes first. Without God's love, no parent could even be a parent at all. Without God's creative love, which comes first. Without God's creative love, no parent could be a parent because a parent doesn't create on their own. A parent doesn't create a soul. God creates a soul, right? Parents are procreators. They, they assist in creation, but they don't create. Parents don't create. They assist in creation, right? They, they provide the, the physical components of, of creation, but they do not create the form of a person, which is the soul. Only God creates the soul. Um, all this to say, right, that's all theological and well and good. That, that doesn't mean that the woman doesn't have pain, but at the same time, I mean, from the narrative um, that we read, this is a woman who held the rest of her family hostage because of the pain, uh, because she would not let go of the resentment and the pain. Um, she held her daughter hostage, her husband hostage, and fixated on the loss of her, her son the rest of her life, to, to the point at which, at least where we left off, she would prefer damnation then reconciliation with God, her husband, her brother, her daughter, and ultimately have her son for eternity because of her fixation on a lesser love or a lesser need, which is really a selfish love, right? Her, her need for her own, her need for her love as she has configured it, which is just her, her desire to possess her son for herself 
as she sees it. Um, and which, which all goes back to the conception of love in, in a greater sense, which is when we love God first, we get everything else. And that thread is throughout the entire book. When, when we live our lives for God, we get everything else thrown in. When we love God first, we get every other love thrown in. Just like she, you know, she was starting off, okay, fine, I'll, whatever God says, fine, I'll do that. Just tell me what to do and because I want my son. Well, then God is only a means to an end. You're just doing that to get, and, and some people treat religion that way, right? Okay, fine, do the, how many rosaries you got to say so I get into heaven, and okay, I go to confession, do the confession thing, get my sins forgiven, and then get into heaven, do what I got to do. Well, then you're just treating God's as a means to an end. God is the end. He is the goal. And so when you treat God that's in a utilitarian fashion, it doesn't work. You can't cheat your way into heaven and in, you know, and into union with God. He's, it's not like you can fool him. You know? um, so God has to be the end and the goal, and everything else gets thrown in. Um, and this poor woman could never, at least not at this point, right? It was, it was left off. This poor woman was unable, at least at this point, to make that, to make that move spiritually in her life. Okay, we'll see you next week for the conclusion of our class. Thank you, everyone.